studies looking at these key teachings of the Bible and we've looked at various different topics and we come now to thinking about the church, the, the people of God and who they are and God's purposes for us. But before I do that, just a reminder, the doozy reminded us in prayer that on Saturday we're meeting to give our invitations. Do we have a time set for that yet? 11.30, meeting in the hall to get my invitations. And usually that doesn't take very long. If you've done it before, you know the houses around here are densely packed together. So you can usually give away 200 or so in a single street. So it doesn't take very long. So, uh, apologies for missing that out. And we continue then thinking about this subject of the church. And so previously we've talked about other topics like salvation how god rescues us we've talked about the god who does this um, but as we thought about salvation we thought about it in rather individual terms how god justifies us as individuals how god works in our lives to transform us and how eventually god will take us um, to be with himself and we thought about it in largely individualistic terms but if we stopped there we could get the wrong idea about christianity about this this life that we've been brought into we could imagine that it's just about me and Jesus an entirely individualistic affair and there are some people who imagine the Christian life purely in individual terms and they live the Christian life in isolation and sometimes it's because they've experienced a lot of hurt and pain in the church and I can understand why some people would would sometimes step away from the formal church context and and not want to be hurt again. Even though I don't agree with what they've done, I can understand that at times. But there's other people, and they just find church life too difficult, too messy, too uncomfortable to be with all this, the kinds of different people that we get pushed up against in the local church context. And for them, they, they don't want to commit to life in a local church. But what I want to suggest tonight is that the New Testament envisages no true believer living life outside of the local church context. There is no life that exists outside of the community of God's people. And so from the perspective of the New Testament, we're not just saved as little atomistic individuals, but we're saved to be brought together as part of the people of God, the church, who gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not just saved as individuals, but saved to belong to a community, to belong to the people of God. But before we go any further, we need to ask ourselves the question, well, what is the church? The Greek word ekklesia, from which we get words like ecclesiastical and ecclesiology, simply means a gathering, an assembly, a congregation. Uh, and so that by itself doesn't really tell us an awful lot. Um, but when we look at how it's actually used in the New Testament, it starts to give us some insight into what the New Testament means when it talks about this gathering, this, this church. And one of the key texts is Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where the Lord Jesus is talking with Peter and he says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades, of course, refers to the realm of the dead. And what the Lord Jesus is therefore saying is that death itself, the powers of, of hell, the powers of death, will not be able to stop 
Christ's church and its advance. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself and through the resurrection of his people, the church will exist and will not be stopped and Christ will have the people for which he died. But what's interesting about this verse is that the Lord Jesus, he doesn't say that he will continue to build his church or that he will uh, transform his church as if it's something that's already there but he speaks about something which he's going to do he says that i will build my church and so he's telling us that there's this going to there's going to be this new community which he creates there's going to be a new thing that hadn't existed previously but now because he has created it because he is the foundation of it and it's this new uh, thing that hadn't previously existed now prior to this Obviously, he'd got Israel as God's national people. They were his people who were called out of the world that was around them to be God's special possession. And so the Jews were God's special people. But Jesus here, he speaks about something new that he's going to do. He speaks about the community that's gathered around himself. And Paul, he speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 3 and emphasizes that oh, this is such a new thing what Jesus Christ has done in this age. And he says... Although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of the, the economy, the, the outworking of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And so Paul, he talks here about this mystery which had been hidden in God for ages past. And a mystery in the New Testament is something which had previously been hidden, but now had been revealed, had been made known. And Paul is saying that God had given him the responsibility of making plain to everyone God's administration of this mystery. And the administration of this mystery takes place the church. That's where God's plan is taking place in this present age. And previously, he has defined what this mystery is by saying in verse 6 that uh, this mystery that is now being revealed is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so what previously hadn't been revealed, that is now being revealed through the Apostle Paul, is that Jews and non-Jews together are part of this one new body, this new community in Jesus Christ. And they aren't different ranks, as if one ethnic group is more important than another, but they share equally in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so this is something that's distinctly new about this community. And of course, the, the Old Testament, it did prophesy about a coming day in which God would gather together as one people, uh, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And you see this really clearly in Isaiah chapter 56, full of longing for this future day that God will bring about. And it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants... All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called 
a house of prayer for all nations. And obviously this is couched in Old Testament language, thinking about the temple and so on. But what the Old Testament didn't see, and what it never clearly envisages, was that there would be a new community in which it wouldn't be the case that non-Jews were becoming Jews. And it wouldn't be the case that non-Jews would exist in a kind of coalition with Jews, as kind of junior partners. But a new thing in which Jews and Gentiles alike would share equally in Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament looks forward through, um, through this lens which is clouded to look forward to what God is going to do. And the church then is the initial fulfillment of these promises made in the Old Testament, but surpasses all that the Old Testament prophecies had actually saw coming. And so what we see then is that the church is this new creation in Jesus Christ, made up of people who are gathered around Jesus Christ as their head and as their Lord to worship and serve him through the Holy Spirit, whether or not they are Jews or Gentiles. But as we read on in the New Testament, we discover that the, a distinction can be made between the global church that is the sum total of all the people that form part of the one body of Jesus Christ, all believers everywhere, and individual churches, which are made up of local gatherings of believers. Uh, and you do see both of these ideas being spoken about in the New Testament. Um, Paul, for example, speaks about this, this mystery that had been hidden ages past, but had now been revealed, and so he's thinking about the church overall as a universal global company. But he also speaks specifically to local churches. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. And he, he thinks about it very locally, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, called to be saints, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, at the end of Romans, Paul, he writes to the Romans and says, all the churches of Christ send greetings. And so he's not just thinking there about one global church, but he's thinking about all the individual churches that make up a part of that. And so what we can say then is that there are local churches that are local manifestations of this global body of Christ which we cannot see, which never actually gathers together, but does gather together locally, and you can see locally when believers gather together. And in one sense, this local church can be considered a part of the body of Christ. But in another sense, it, it is a fully formed, fully functioning body of Christ. Uh, and that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 27, Paul, he writes to the Corinthians, a local church, and says, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It's true, of course, that we're all part of the global body of Christ, but his point in writing to the Corinthians is that we all need to work together as a local community and recognize the value of each other as a local community because we're all part of the one body. And he sees that the local church is the body of Christ. So it, it functions then as a kind of microcosm of the, the broader church, the body of Christ. And it's important to be aware of the importance of both 
the universal or global church as well as the local church. Because if you deny one or the other, then you end up going down very strange directions. So, for example, there's some people, not very many of them, um, and they hold to a belief known as landmarkism. You typically don't find them in the UK, mostly in the US. It's basically an extreme Baptist theology which denies that there is such a thing as the global or universal church. They say there is only such a thing as local individual churches, and of course they insist that they are that, those local individual churches uh, and no one else's. But the problem, of course, with that is that it denies our unity with the rest of believers across the world. It, more than that, it actually doesn't grapple with what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about the church as this, this whole body that's been created by Jesus Christ. But more common than beliefs like landmarkism is the denial of the importance of the local church. And you'll find that everywhere. Uh, you'll find that to a lot of people. Um, sometimes it's not a flat-out denial, but it's a denial of the importance of the local church. A kind of casual dismissal of it as something which is really unnecessary. And it often becomes an excuse to then fail to make ourselves accountable to uh, a local church community. Because like I said, local church life can be messy. It can be difficult, disappointing. Uh, and because of all of these things, um, there are many people that would just prefer to stay at home or maybe meet with some Christians that they enjoy meeting with. And it becomes a, a, a situation where the local church reality is actually diminished. But we need to maintain both truths the reality of the global church and the reality of local churches because both are taught in the New Testament and both are actually really important for us to, to understand and appreciate. Now, thinking then about the, the importance of the global church and why that's so important for us to recognize, we look to the prayer of the Lord Jesus in Matthew or in John chapter 17 as he prays for his disciples there. And you see here a real passionate prayer for the unity of all believers. I think this is really important to capture the significance of the global church for the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 20 of John 17, My prayer is not for them alone. That's the disciples that he's with. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the Lord Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross, about something that's deeply on his heart, what he really wants, what burdens him ahead of his suffering, is that there would be a community of people gathered around him who know him and know the Father, and who, because of their unity and communion with God, will be recognized by the world as the people that really belong to God, as the people that really belong to Jesus Christ. So that when the world looks on, they say, 
look, this really is the community that has been formed by God. Now, my starting point when reading a prayer like this is that the Lord Jesus never prayed for anything that he didn't get answered. So, when the Lord Jesus prays for this, it's not a pipe dream that doesn't actually get fulfilled. It's something which God hears and God answers. And so, that, as I read it then with that understanding that this is a prayer which has been answered for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is the reality that there isn't an institutional unity to believers everywhere. You can't say that they all belong to one institution and you can look up the members role and see everybody that belongs to the global church. And yet, I don't think that the Lord Jesus is praying for institutional unity here. I don't think he's saying that he wants there to be one massive institutionally recognized body. I think that you can have a big institution and yet have no organic unity. And so what the Lord Jesus is praying for here is an organic unity that comes about through the Spirit of God, uniting us to God himself so that we all confess one Lord and that we all serve together this one Lord Jesus Christ and worship him in light of his return. This is the unity that's been brought about through the Spirit of God. And so on that basis, I think that there already is a genuine unity. Of course, there's going to be an even greater unity yet to come in the future, but the fact that the Lord Jesus says that he wants the world to look on and see this indicates that it's something which happens even now in the present. He wants people to be able to see this unity that we have and I think that this unity is something which is real. And you'll recognize it if you go to different parts of the world and you go and find other believers and you meet with them and you feel that kinship with other believers because you recognize that there's something that joins you to them. You've got this shared appreciation of Jesus Christ. You've got this shared delight in all that he has done and is doing for us and will do for us and it is that unity that is brought about by the Spirit of God that brings us to worship one Lord is the unity that the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for. And so what we need to do is actually recognize the unity that we do have that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for. And it's precisely because of the unity that we already have that we should work together with other brothers and sisters to actually live out the unity which already is ours through the Spirit of God. And so it honors God when believers work together from different church groups to actually serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go in further into that because obviously it's got complications about how and when you do that and so on, but it's recognizing that there is a genuine unity that we share. And then we think about how do we express that in ways which, which honor the Lord Jesus and don't violate principles that we might actually hold. But like I said, there's not only um, the the unity of the global church that witnesses to the fact that we are one in Jesus Christ, but there's the reality of local churches as well. And every believer that's part of the global church should also be a member of a local church. But then that opens up the question of what actually is a local church. And this is really an important question to grapple with because there's some people and they might say, well, the local church is just a gathering of believers that meet together for any purpose. So, for example, on a Saturday morning, if 
you and your Christian friends decide to meet together to pray, some people would say, well, that's believers, two or three meeting together in the Lord's name, so therefore that's church. But is that a church? Is that the, the local assembly, the church, the congregation that the New Testament envisages? I mean, there is something to it. We want to recognize our unity with other believers and recognize that when we do come together with other believers, the, the Holy Spirit of God makes us feel that union that we share with them. But does that make it a church? And I would suggest that it doesn't make it a church. And my reason for saying that draws on the Reformation understanding that a true local church can be identified by three marks. The preaching of the scriptures, the proper administration of the sacraments or the ordinances, and the exercise of church discipline. Now, simply stating those points doesn't make them true, and so you're probably wondering, well, how can you show that from scripture? So, let's have a think then. Firstly, um, no, going too far there. Firstly, we would say that I, I think the first mark of a true church is the preaching of the scriptures. After all, what marked the new community, the church that was born in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is the proclamation of the word of God. And Peter stands up in the midst of this proclamation of the word of God and says that this is actually the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Joel envisaged this day would come. And what marks out Joel chapter 2 is the, the point that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Joel imagines a day when God's people will proclaim the word of God. And so the church is literally birthed in this context of the proclamation of the word of God. And so when it comes to Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 23, he highlights the significance of the proclamation or prophecy of God's word. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, which is on the slide, if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, setting aside the question of what this tongues business is and Paul's regulations around that, I think the point is that Paul is driving it is that prophecy is really important. And when he talks about the spiritual gifts, he says, desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The long-standing understanding of the church has been that prophecy refers to the proclamation of God's word, sometimes supernaturally communicated, but more often than not communicated through the preaching of God's word. And there are some people that see prophecy more narrowly. But I think when you look at prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not just about something supernatural. It's about broadly the proclamation of God's word. And this is what Paul's saying here. That if you've got everybody speaking in tongues and nobody understands what's going on, then it's not going to benefit anybody coming in. They're just going to come in and say everybody's mad. But if you've got people that come in from outside, unbelievers, don't know what's going on, and they hear God's word being proclaimed, they're convicted by what they hear. The secrets of their hearts are laid bare by the exposing power of God's word. Then they go away saying, God is really among them. That's what marks out the true church is the proclamation of God's word. It's what makes manifest that God is really amongst us because God's voice is heard amongst us. So if you've just got a group of Christians who meet together on Saturday morning to pray, I would say that 
they don't meet this requirement of the proclamation of God's word, which is a key feature of the New Testament church. Now, the second feature of a New Testament church is not just the preaching of the word of God, but it's the, the correct administration of the ordinances or the sacraments. Now, typically, in low church Protestantism, we steer away from words like sacraments because it sounds a bit too Catholic. But historically, the word has just been referred to an outward sign of an inward grace. And so baptism, for example, is an outward sign of an inward reality that's taken place. And so taken in, that, in those terms, I don't think the term is objectionable. But I do think that the word ordinances is a little bit clearer, so I'll use the word ordinances. And this stresses the fact that when we talk about ordinances, we're talking about things that have been ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. He has said to the church, do this. And so the only ordinances that we recognize are those that the Lord Jesus has actually told us to do. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, recognizes uh, seven different sacraments. Uh, they include things like marriage amongst that. But we would say that marriage isn't a sacrament or an ordinance because it wasn't given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we recognize that there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so what I suggest is that a true church is defined by the correct administration of these. Baptism, then, first of all, um, is, is the sign that marks out who belongs to the Lord Jesus, the public sign of who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not walking an aisle, not putting up your hand, not signing a card, baptism. And this is why the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, this baptism occurred at the start of the Christian life for new believers. And so it was a sign of their new birth into Jesus Christ. And Paul, he makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he says that we were all baptized into one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, maybe you say that's spirit baptism, that's not water baptism. Whatever view you take, the point is that certainly this would be the underlying reality that water baptism would symbolize. And so water baptism would certainly symbolize this inward reality of the Spirit making us all one body in Jesus Christ. And so what this is saying then is that baptism is the visible sign that marks us as belonging to the body of Christ. And so since baptism is the sign that marks us out as belonging to the body of Christ, it makes sense that the local church actually administers that. The local church recognizes who is part of that body of Christ because it's the microcosm, it's the visible expression of the global church. Now the other ordinance is the Lord's Supper and the Lord Jesus laid down this requirement. It's described in... This light changed, light hasn't changed, it's gone too far. There we go, thank you. Um, the other ordinance is uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, and this is described for us in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. And when you look at how Paul describes the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you notice some very important points. He says in verse 20 that it's when you come together. And his point is that this isn't just an ad hoc, let's grab some bread and wine together and celebrate the Lord's Supper just whenever we feel like it. It's a corporate gathering you're deliberately coming together 
to celebrate this Lord's Supper, and that's the context in which Paul envisages it. He then chastises these Corinthians because they haven't been doing it properly, and it's interesting to note his concerns. He says in verse 20 that it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So why are they not eating the Lord's Supper? Why does he not recognize it as valid? Well, he asks them the question, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? It's not a private meal. It's not just a, a casual meal that you have with your family or your friends. And he says very sternly to them in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, sometimes we imagine that this applies to all kinds of generic sins that might be afflicting us. And, and we suggest then that, you know, if you've got some sin in your life, then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. And I don't think that this is what it's saying. Obviously, we should repent of any sin before we take the Lord's Supper. But Paul's concern here is that the Corinthians have been acting haughtily and excluding the poorer believers. Perhaps they're having to work later. They're not able to get along to the Lord's Supper later in the day. And the, these richer believers, they're meeting and they're not waiting for these poorer believers, those who have nothing, as Paul describes them as. And they're introducing this division into the church life. And so to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy way is to, to partake of it in such a way that you create division in the body of Christ, in the local church. And that, says Paul, is a really serious matter. So when you trace Paul's underlying assumptions here, he sees that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is something that the church does when it gathers together. And it does so with a view to not excluding anyone who's part of that local church community. So that when you come together, you recognize your unity as a local church and take the bread and the wine. And so then, the church has two ordinances. Baptism, which is the recognition of who enters into the local church, part of the body of Christ, and the Lord's Supper, which is the regular continual meal of the church by which it signifies to the world and to itself that it draws its life continually from the Lord Jesus Christ who died for her. And so both signs, I would say, are given to the church specifically. So on that basis, again, I would say that a group of friends that meet together to pray aren't a local church because they don't administer the ordinances. But the last mark of the local church, then, is church discipline. Now, sometimes when we think about church discipline, we imagine the very extreme forms where a person is excluded or excommunicated, and certainly those would be the clearest case of church discipline. But church discipline refers more broadly to the concern that we exercise for one another, that we actually care for one another spiritually. And when we go wrong, we're actually there for each other to, to bring each other back into following the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does become manifest in more um, significant circumstances. Matthew chapter 18, for example, you get a very clear example of how the church is to function. And Lord Jesus, he specifically identifies the church in this context. And he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So the Lord Jesus, he's stressing here the importance of accountability between brothers and sisters. 
we recognize a sin in another brother or sister, then we go and we speak to them about it privately. And obviously, Jim spoke to us on Lord's Day about the importance of taking the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of another brother or sister's eye. So that's an important consideration to bear in mind too. But when we do speak to our brother or sister, it's done privately first of all. Then, if they don't listen to us, then we bring along one or two other brothers and sisters to speak to them about this problem. And it's only after that continuous unrepentance that we actually say, right, you're not demonstrating that you're part of the body of Christ. You're not demonstrating that you truly belong to and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to have to tell it to the church community. And so they tell the church community, and the church community then treats them as they would a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't mean they hate them. That doesn't mean they're nasty to them. It means that they don't recognize them as believers. They don't recognize them as part of the church community. And so then the church has the authority to recognize who is and who is not part of its membership. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you've got a person who's excluded from membership because of some serious unrepentant sin. And it's important to notice in both these cases that it's not the presence of sin as such that causes anybody to be excluded. We're all sinners. We all sin. And we are, as I said recently, a hospital for, for sick sinners, not a museum for masterpieces that have already been perfected. But what's being called out here in these passages is unrepentant sin. When somebody sins, say, I haven't done anything wrong, refuse to actually admit to anything, that's the point at which the church has to say, look, what's going on here isn't consistent with someone who calls themselves a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, coming back to a little group of friends that are meeting on a Saturday morning to pray, are they a church? I would say, no, they're not a church because they don't exercise church discipline. They are not there to exclude anyone. They're there just to enjoy the company of one another. And so what I've tried to demonstrate from Scripture is that um, the three essential marks of a New Testament church would be the preaching of the Word of God, the administration of the ordinances, and the exercise of church discipline. Now, there's other things that would mark a healthy church, the importance of evangelism, the importance of prayer, and so on, and a lot of these things go without saying. But I mention those that I think are essential for constituting a true church. Still, I recognize that others would quibble with how I might have put some of these things here. So if you do disagree with me, that's okay. And we can chat about it afterwards. But still, I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, and I think that these three marks are a good definition of what constitutes a local church. And hopefully you see why I'm arriving at those places, even if you don't agree with me. Now, one of the church... I've come to the last point here. Um, one of the things that the church... Second last point... And one of the issues that Christians have generally disagreed on is how the church should be governed, how it should be organized. And there are various views, all of which have more or less biblical support. So Episcopalianism is the view that the church is run by an episkopos or a bishop. And so the Church of England, for example, in different areas has different bishops. You've got the um, you've got Bishop of Newcastle, and then you've got archbishops above them, Archbishop of York, Archbishop of Canterbury, and so on. And that model of the church is about top-down structure. You've got these leaders, these bishops, that rule over a particular area. That is a form of government which arose very early uh, in the history of the church. From the second century onwards, you do see this kind of monarchical 
um, idea of Episcopal government, where you've got a single bishop over a, a particular area. Still, it's not something that you see in the New Testament. I mean, you look at someone like First Timothy, Paul uh, and Titus. Paul envisages that there's going to be multiple um, bishops or or overseers in a single church congregation, and so that's what he sees in Ephesus. There's going to be multiple overseers. Presbyterianism is of more recent vintage and it draws from the reformed tradition in Geneva and also in Scotland, the Presbyterian tradition there. And they, uh, they argue that they are being biblical about their principles. And so in the Presbyterian system, you've got presbyters, which is another, it's a Greek word for elder, and they would have elders in a local church congregation, but those elders would meet together in a regional area to discuss matters of common concern. And those elders, as they meet together um, in a general assembly, would have authority over the individual local churches and would make decisions uh, for those local churches. And Presbyterians would argue that Acts chapter 15 is a good example of this, where you've got people gathering together from across the area to meet together in Jerusalem to actually discuss issues of common concern. And then they thrash out this agreement, which is then binding on the local churches. Independency, however, says that there is no structure above the local church and that each church should function independently and have its own elders who are not under the authority of anybody else but Christ. And so they highlight high in First Timothy and Titus and so on. Um, Timothy and Titus are called upon to, to recognize and appoint elders in those local congregations, but there's no suggestion that there's any kind of authority above that. Certainly there's apostolic authority, but with the cessation of the apostles, there's no other authority above that. And again, it's not that these individual churches ignore one another, but it's just that there's no superstructure. There's nothing which demands that each church must follow suit based upon some overarching decree. The history of brethrenism, then, is a curious one, uh, which I'm not going to go into detail, because various uh, branches of brethrenism have have embraced all of these to some extent. Um, some branches of brethrenism have an overarching structure where you've got elders that meet together and make decisions for local congregations. Others embrace a more independent model where you've got local church elders and, and others simply reject the idea of an official eldership altogether and say that it should be much more organic than that. And so I don't have time to adjudicate all of these positions. Suffice to say that here at Benjamin we practice independency. We, we aren't accountable to any higher structure. And we're led by local elders. And as been recently pointed out, um, we ought to recognize the importance of deacons as well. Paul talks about this in First Timothy. He talks about deacons who, if they're the same as what takes place in Acts, have a servant role, which is what the word means. Deacon means servant. And... I think their value is that they free up elders to focus on more spiritual preaching, teaching, prayer issues of the church, while the administrative issues can actually be taken care of by deacons. Still, it would be wrong to get bogged down into labels, and particularly the use of a Greek word like deacon. We don't need to use a Greek word to actually exercise the office. And so if someone was exercising a caretaker role, or an administrative role, or a finance role, we could say that those people are servants of the church. We recognize them performing an official duty. And so I venture to suggest that those would be deacon roles. 
But having more clearly defined rules is doubtless a good idea and something which we will doubtless discuss in further days. But as we come to the end, last couple of minutes, I've spoken about the definition of the church, the unity of the church, the marks of a local church, and the government of the church. But it's really important not to forget the purpose of the local church. Why are we here? Why has the Lord Jesus left us here? He's gone back to heaven. He's left his people here. He could have taken us with him. He could instantly take us to be with him every time someone becomes a believer. Why does he not do that? Why does he leave us here? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so the church has a very specific purpose. It's to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. See, praise in scripture is never just directed at God. It is directed at God, but it's also in the presence of other people. Look at the sounds, look at the way praise functions. Praise is praising God in the presence of other people so that other people can hear me talking to God about how great he is. And that's why the chief function of the church is worship, to declare to God in the presence of other people how great God is. And through the worship of God, the adoration of God, the world comes along and sees how great God is, how good God is, that God would take us and bring us to be his special possession, to take us out of darkness into light. And this then has an evangelistic function because when others hear about God and hear about all that God has done for us, then they want to know that God as well. And so that's why I think worship and evangelism should never be divided. You can't have one without the other. Worship is when people can actually see us earnestly declaring to God how much we appreciate him. And so I think that even on a Sunday morning, as, as unbelievers watch us worshipping, they learn our appreciation for Jesus Christ. Similarly, evangelism is not just about talking to people. It's about letting other people see our, our love for God. That's why, typically, in evangelism, we'll, we'll sing hymns of praise at the start as well. And the reason for that is so that people can actually see how excited we are about the God that, that we love, who has been so good to us. And so both evangelism and worship go hand in hand. They're not either or. They, they must go together. Because Peter says that we are, we are here. We exist as a church, as God's special people, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so while here on earth, the church exists to praise God and to invite others to come and know that God while we are still here. In this period of grace where God is patient, calling people to know him, he's inviting people to come to know God. And so as we reflect on who we are and what it means to be God's people, may God help us to keep at the forefront of our minds our calling. We exist to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, and Father, we thank you for the grace that has called us out of darkness and called us into your marvellous light. 
We thank you that we, who once were not a people, are now your people. Once we were strangers to one another and strangers.